0: Hey, good morning. You know, happy Mother's Day to all of you moms out there. Um, I don't think that there's a single job as underappreciated or as, like, kind of, like, infinitely valued as the job of a mom in the life of her kids. So, yeah, you had amen from you? (laughs) Um, Yeah, for the life of this world and the health of our communities, like, you guys have this, like, way undervalued positions. So um, happy Mother's Day, and I hope at least one day a year you feel appreciated, right? So <laughs> anyway, now that I've offended everybody, um, <laughs> you know, we are, if you're just joining us, my name is Steve, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we are studying in the book of John, and we are in John chapter 7 this morning, starting at verses 25. So if you have a Bible, you know, you'll want to open there. And what we've been seeing in the last, like, few weeks, is that when Jesus arrived on the world and when he began his ministry, he was a really controversial, he was a really controversial figure. And we've been seeing that kind of that controversy highlighted, and we'll see that again this morning. You know, for some people, he stirred like the hope of the, of the, of the fulfillment of all the promises of God to them. He stirred that in them, and they were just waiting with expectation, with all of these things that they kind of lo- loaded on those, expe- on those promises of what God was going to do for them. For others, as he like addressed their sin and as he addressed their false worship and their idolatry and everything else they put for God, like they hated him. And in some ways, like, he was probably more controversial then than he is today, because today, like we're you know over the last like couple millennia, people have been able to like shape Jesus into whatever they want him to be, right? Like there's all these different versions of Jesus, but when Jesus was here, like he kind of relentlessly continued to proclaim his mission and what he came to do, who he was, and it was kind of inescapable. And what we're going to find out today is that, is that what Jesus is going to tell people, that unless you understand, like, who he really is, unless you understand what he's come to do, and unless you understand, like, what he promises us, you can talk all you want about Jesus, um, but it won't mean anything. You know, this text is interesting because um, one of the things that drives this text, I highlighted them all of them, not in my Bible, but on a separate sheet of paper as I was studying, and there's all sorts of like, like it's not even dialogue, there's all sorts of quotes of people that drive all the way throughout our text, and Jesus says some things, and then there's all these glimpses into what the crowd's saying, but what doesn't happen in our text, is really interesting, is that the crowd never talks to Jesus. Like, you'll see all of these pictures of people talking about Jesus, and Jesus responding to them, but but... They never talk to each other. I mean, Jesus talks to them, but they never talk to Jesus. They never ask Jesus any questions, but they have all sorts of questions that they ask each other. You know, I, I was thinking it was kind of like a Broadway musical where... and uh, Are you with me already? <laughs> okay, I don't need to say anymore. So... <laughs> No, it's kind of like a Broadway musical where you have like this rom- like this like growing romance between a like a man and a woman and, and the man's over here. If only she knew how much I loved her, and and the woman's then the spotlight goes over right, and I won't sing this one. <laughs> if only he knew, right? And there's these dialogues going on, and and Jesus continues to like express like his care for the world. By telling them where he's from, where he's going, and what he promises, and people just completely don't get it. People don't get it. So our text is a long text. It's going to break out into four sections. They don't understand where he was from. This is the, no matter what Jesus did, it seems like this was true. They didn't understand where he was going. They didn't understand what he offered, and so ultimately they just opposed him. And that's pretty simple outline going through our text this morning and i think it's important for us because if you're here and you're just investigating the claims of jesus or maybe you think you know who jesus was this is an important text for you because in it jesus is going to like speak to those three things where he came from what he came to do and what he promises you know and if you're here and you you like think you know an answer to all of those it's an important text for us to reflect on those things as well because i think it's really 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 easy to proclaim, like, to claim we know all of those things and yet not be captured by, like, the wonder of where Jesus came from, not be, like, moved, like, to action about what he came to do, not live in light of the fact of of what he came to offer, and we end up just kind of living this, like, lukewarm life that doesn't really accomplish anything. So why don't we stand? I'm going to go ahead and read the first portion of our text, um... There they go again. Just so you know, somebody asked me if that was a joke when I had the whole standing thing to test the projectors. It's not a joke. We're still trying to figure it out. Um, if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, you can talk to me afterwards, but uh, I'm st- it still blows my mind. So, uh, but anyway, uh, this is God's word for the church. John chapter 7, starting at verse 25. John 7, verse 25. Therefore, some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? And look. He is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. But whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Jesus therefore cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. They were seeking, therefore, to seize him, and no may, no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Let's pray, Father. I just thank you for your word, and I thank you for your patience towards us as as your people. How you just graciously um like bring us to the knowledge of your Son. And so, Father, I just pray if there's anyone here this morning that um, doesn't know. You or thinks they know you, but doesn't really. That you would open their eyes to who Jesus is, and for those of us that do know you, that that you would deepen our love and our allegiance and our loyalty um, to your Son, because he is above all, and in all, and through all. Pray these things in Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. You know, as you can tell from the reading, like verse twenty-five, just kind of starts off in the middle of of like a, a longer dialogue that we looked at last week. And last week, what we saw is that Jesus had gone up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Tents. And, and that was a celebration that the, where, where the people of Israel would go up to Jerusalem, they would all live in tents, and they would remember the fact that they were pilgrims on this earth when Jesus like led them out of Egypt through the wilderness. And how in the wilderness that God provided for them bread, and God provided for them like water from the rock. And And there would be this constant remembrance that they were pilgrims and sojourners in this world. You know, one of the things that we, that we kick off in is that, is that it was a dangerous place for Jesus to be because we saw this last week that the Jews, the, the religious like elite and the leaders in Jerusalem, were seeking to kill Jesus. They wanted to kill him because last time he was in Jerusalem, he had healed a guy on the Sabbath, broke all their Sabbath laws, which was a big deal for them, and as they were dialoguing about that, he claimed to be God himself, which was a really big deal for them. So they wanted... To kill him. And so when Jesus is publicly teaching in the temple, you know, there's this, there's this interesting like response from part of the crowd. Therefore, some of the people in Jerusalem are saying, is this not the man whom they are seeking to kill? And look, he is speaking publicly and they are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? So the fact that Jesus is speaking, there's this like conspiracy theory that starts to spread. Like, hey, maybe the rulers of of Israel know something that we don't know, and maybe this is really the Messiah. Maybe this is the one that we've been hoping for all the time. And then quickly, they just dismiss the idea. Look what happens, Verse verse 27. However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. It's a really interesting statement. I think it's really important that we kind of, and we need to focus on this, this expression, like, we know. So there's this question being raised by Jesus' presence in Jerusalem, by his teaching, by his miracles, and they're like, well, maybe this is the Messiah. And then they quickly dismiss the idea because of what they know. But we know. And what they're doing is they're just letting, like, their, their assumptions about who Jesus was their prior knowledge of who they thought Jesus was, what they thought about the coming Messiah, um, like completely blind them to the reality of what's going on around them. This is, we know what? We know where this guy's from. Oh, he's a dude from Galilee. He's just a normal teacher that's coming up. And then they make this claim, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. There's this claim that like, no one would know where, where Jesus is from, and what it shows is that this, at least this portion of the crowd had very little, if any, knowledge of the scriptures, and they're going to discard their view of who Jesus is simply based on what they th- assume that they know, and they don't even ask any questions. We know. We know about the coming Messiah, and he's supposed to come from nobody knows where, and, but we know where this guy is, so he can't be the Messiah. We're just going to discard him altogether. And yet, and look what Jesus says in verse 28. Knowing the hearts of men and what some of the crowd were saying, he, he says this, and it's really interesting. Jesus therefore cried out in the temple. And that expression cried out doesn't mean primarily like volume. It means like substance, like weight. Like he spoke with gravitas about this thing. Like hear ye, hear ye, this thing should have some weight. And he says this. You both know where I am from. You both know me and know where I am from. He starts off saying like, hey, you guys are partly right. Like, you know I'm Jesus. You know that like I'm from Galilee and that I've got a family home in Capernaum. And you know that that's like a, that all those facts about me. You have partial knowledge about who I am. That's partially true. Then he adds on. Look what he says. And... I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. He's like, oh, there's something, but there's something even more important that you might think you know that you don't really know. And and what it is, is that the the story that Jesus was from Galilee, that he was a human teacher, that he had a family home home in Capernaum, like, isn't really the whole story. He says this, he says, I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Because you just believe like the public opinion about Jesus, because you just believe your assumptions and you don't even like engage them, because you don't bring them to the scriptures to see if, if your claim that no one knows where the Messiah is going to come from is even true, you don't know what you really need to know. You don't know God is what he's saying because what, what he's talking about when he says, and we've seen this all through John, I have not come from myself, but he who sent me, that he's been sent from the Father. That he didn't like, this idea wasn't just his own. His authority is not just his own. And the Father, God himself, is the true one. That's what he says. He is true. And you don't know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. If you want to know who God is, you need to come to grips with really who Jesus is because Jesus isn't just man from Galilee. He is like God himself come in the flesh. That's how John opens the book in John 1. Now, I think that there's a ton of implications about this. Like, do we really know where Jesus is from? And we would, if you're a Christian, you're going to acknowledge that Jesus is like, was always God, that he became a man, that he was born in Bethlehem, you know, all of these things, right? We can just recite those things. We can like acknowledge those things. We sing about him every Christmas. But do we really like believe the fact that Jesus came from God, that he speaks for God, that he represents God? John the Baptist earlier in the book um, uses some of the almost exact same language talking about Jesus. It's in John 3, 31 through 36. I've got it on the screen. If you guys want to follow along, it's a little bit longer section, but look what he says. He who comes from above is above all. He was of the earth, speaks of, is from the earth, and speaks from of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Let's just stop there for a second. Twice he says it, talking about Jesus. He who comes from above is above all. What he's saying is like Jesus deserves, he, Jesus has all authority, all power, and In light of that, he deserves all of our loyalty, all of our obedience, all of our worship. He's not just somebody that came from the earth and speaks of the earth. He's not just some good teacher. He is the one who's come from above and is above all. He goes on. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to it. To this, that God is true. For he, whom, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. What he's saying there is that because Jesus knows God, Jesus is the one that perfectly speaks for God, that he's the one that has the fullness of the Spirit upon him, that there is no like limitation in his communication for God. He is, above all, he speaks the truth of who God is, and then he goes on. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You know, what John the Baptist tells us is that Jesus Christ is above all, he's the source of all truth, and that he is the source of eternal life. And so here's the question you know if if you're if you're uh, here just investigating the, again the claims of Jesus investigating this whole thing about christianity i don't even like to say that because christianity has so much baggage sometimes like strapped to it like let's just focus on jesus know this he's not from below he doesn't just he's not just a good teacher he claimed to be god himself he's the one that's above all and every Aspect of our life should be lived in submission to Him and in worship of Him. Every part of it. So, if you're here as a Christian and there's areas in your life where you are not like living as if Christ is above all, where you're living in your own like sovereignty and your own like power and your own decisions and your own like wisdom, you're not really living like a Christian. Because Christ would say, John the Baptist tells us that he's above all, and life is found in him. That's what what John the Baptist ends with. The father loves the son. There's this loving relationship that we get to participate in, and he who believes in the son has eternal life. And if you don't, the wrath of God abides on you. So Jesus first claimed to these people that claim to just discard him because they already thought that they knew what he said was that you really don't know because if you knew you would believe now that brings us to our second point that they didn't know where he was going you know what he says there starting in verse um, 31 but many of the multitudes believed in him and they were saying when the christ shall come he will not perform more signs than the those which this man has, will he? That's verse thirty-one, verse thirty-two. The Pharisees heard the multitude muttering these things about him, and sent the chief pri- chief priests and sorry, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. So what happened is, is that as Jesus was teaching, there was a whole bunch of people that like kind of threw in there a lot with Jesus. It said they believed in him because they saw the signs. They said to themselves, "Well, nobody, if, the Messiah won't do more signs than this guy has." Now, if you remember, like through our study, if you've been with us through our study of the book of John, like starting in John 2, we saw it in John 6. Like belief that's based like, primarily upon the miracles of Jesus is a is an insufficient belief. Then unless they realize that those miracles weren't ends in themselves, but that they were signs pointing to like who Jesus really was, that their their faith was typically like short-lived. And as soon as the reality of the crucifixion of Christ was being proclaimed, we saw this in John 6 everybody bailed on him. So there's these people that believe to some degree, but John's kind of indicating to us that they just believe because of the miracles, not because they really understand who Jesus is, and they don't understand where he's going, because look what happens. So verse 32, the Pharisees, because he had some popularity, they see him as a threat, so they send the Pharisees, and it says the, the chief priests, which are interesting. Let me just side note here. The chief priests and the Pharisees were kind of like the chief priests were largely Sadducees, which was like one religious party, and the Pharisees were obviously Pharisees, which is another religious party, and they were like enemies of each other. They were in competition, they were enemies, and yet here, because they have a common like enemy in Christ, they, they band together. It's interesting how that can easily happen in this world, where, where uh, just out of some common enemy or common offense, you like... All of a sudden, find yourselves in partnership with people that you never thought you'd be in partnership with, and usually ends badly. But they send they send guards to go get Jesus and to seize him, and then look at how Jesus responds. You know, I'm kind of doesn't ex- exactly say the timing, but it says Jesus therefore said in response to these officers coming to see him, he says this: for a little while longer I am with you, then I go to him who sent me. You shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. So here come these guards, and Jesus is like, you know what? I'm only going to be here for a second, and then I'm out, and you're not going to be able to find me. You know, and so the guards are like, hmm, I wonder what he's talking about there. And, and then you see this dialogue in verse 35, the Jews therefore said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we shall not find him? He is not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks um is he what is this statement that he said you will seek me and will not find me and where i am you cannot come so what happens then is that as they were coming to arrest jesus we're not even told like exactly what transpires we'll discover that in just a minute what happens then is that as they're coming to arrest jesus jesus makes this kind of cryptic statement that i'm going to be leaving and you're not going to find me and you can't even come after me you know, and some of you guys, if you know where this story goes, you know, or he c- can probably sense what he's talking about there. We see it in verse 33, I am going to him who sent me, he's going to go back to the Father. What we're going to discover is that the crowd had like complete inability to understand like where Jesus was going on his path to the cross. In fact, flip over in your Bibles with me to John chapter 12, verse 27, John 12, verse 27. Navigate there on your devices if you are one of those people. Jesus is speaking to, to, uh, to his disciples, and he says this. He says, now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. You know, as we, as we play out what Jesus is talking about when he's like going where they can't come, you know, one of the stops we have to make is here where he talks about his hour. We saw that expression back in the text that they couldn't take it, they couldn't seize him because his hour hadn't come. And here he's saying, Man, my soul is troubled. That word sometimes like translated terrified, sometimes it's translated like agitated, like burdened, like grieved. Jesus says, my soul is grieved because of what's about to come, because my hour has come. But it's for this very purpose that I've come. So what am I going to say? No? No, this is, this is the central point of my mission on the earth. And for all of us who like believe in Jesus, it is absolutely essential for us that he, that he does what God wants him to do. Look over at John chapter 13, verse 1. We get a better idea of what he's talking about. Now, before the feast of the Passover, and listen, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own great world, he loved them to the end. This hour that he's coming, this departure of the world, and, and, and again, if, unless you know where the story's going, you might not completely know what, is, what he's talking about. But what John is telling us is that Jesus' departure out of this world to the Father is an expression of his unfathomable and inexhaustible love that loves them to the, to the end, like to the uttermost. It's an expression of his love that that has no bounds, that whatever's going to happen that unfolds is going to be this, that's going to bring dimension to the unfathomable love of God. And we we get a hint of what that might be in verse 2. And during supper, the devil already having put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. Oh, whatever is going to happen... Where, that's going to cause Jesus to depart out of this world as an expression of his love for for it, has something to do with Judas's betrayal. You're smart folks. You know what we what we discover as the story of the Book of John unfolds is that, is that ultimately his departure from this world, that's an expression of his love, that's essential and central to his mission on the earth is his departing this world through the crucifixion. So here's a question for you. What does the centrality of Christ's crucifixion on the cross and the essential nature of it, because that's what he said, am I going to say that, that, no, I'm not going to go to this hour? He's like, no, this is my very purpose. What does the the centrality and essential nature of the crucifixion say about you? What does the essential nature of the and, and the centrality of the crucifixion say about you? If Jesus came to die for you? You know, I think the as we meditate on that, there's a whole bunch of places our heart could go. But Tim Keller, this is a really famous quote. If you've read any of Tim Keller, you're probably familiar with this quote, but I just think it's so perfect here. Because what Jesus is saying is like, you you crowds don't understand where I'm going. You don't understand the need for the centrality and the, the essential nature of the cross. So you don't really understand who I am. In fact, you don't even understand who you are. And here it is. The gospel says that you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared to believe. Is that true about the cross? The cross says, like, you could not do anything for yourself. That you had no ability to deal with your sin problem that goes all the way to your core. That Jesus had to die in your place. In fact, in John 3, listen to what it says. This is back earlier in the book of John. John 3, verses 19 and 20. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. There's something really disconcerting about the truth of the gospel and about the truth of Christ's um, crucifixion because it exposes, like Jesus says this, right? That he's the light of the world. And it exposes who we are, and it leaves us just like naked and vulnerable and exposed in front of God himself, and we hate that. that what did Tim Keller say? That it, that it says that you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared to believe? But then he goes on, but you're more accepted and loved than you ever dared to hope. And listen to what 1 John, the same apostle that wrote John, wrote this in 1 John verses 9 and 10, 4, 9, and 10. By this the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation, two things about it. First, Teach it to his two-year-old and see what they come up with when they say it. Okay, record it for me. Send it to me. You can put it in the weekly. I've got to teach Everett propitiation. Um, he actually he actually can say Greg Popovich. if you guys so he should be able to pull off propitiation, right? <laughs> Second thing, more important than that, propitiation means that 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 the demands of the law required like satisfaction they required justice they required payment and propitiation is the payment that satisfies like the demands of the law so what he's saying here is that you know God's love that's what Jesus John was saying in John 13 like this love to the uttermost because We could be saved through him. His love was manifested in us because he sent his son to be the the sacrifice that satisfied the demands that the law put on you. That that the light exposes for all in all of its ugliness. The fact that Jesus declared to these crowds, "Like you don't know where I'm going," because he had this mission of the crucifixion, says that we are more sinful than we ever dared to believe but we are more accepted and loved than we ever dared to hope. Because Jesus has paid the price for us. You know, he's, you know, the first point, like, he came from above, so he deserves all of our loyalty. What kind of love is that? Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And when we were sinners, he sent his son to die for us, that he shines his light upon us, not so he can bring condemnation and rejection, but so that he can bring healing and forgiveness and the removal of shame and bring us back in. And that kind of love not only demands our loyalty, but it, demands, it should demand our worship and our affection. We should love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. You know, the last thing that, well, not the last thing, but the the last thing that they didn't know was that they didn't know what he offered. This is in verses 37 through 44, back in chapter 7. This feast was a, was a seven-day feast, and he had stood up in the middle of the feast earlier. Apparently, after the whole incident with the guards, he kind of disappeared for a few days. And now on verse 37, it's the last day of the feast. And he says this, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. But, some of his, but this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Interestingly enough, during the Feast of Tabernacles, um, there was two kind of rituals that were that were done every day. One of them was called the water ritual, where they would take a bowl of water from the pool of Siloam, carry it up to the temple, and then kind of mix, add it in to the, to the drink offerings, which were like wine and now this water that they would dump on the... They would dump on the uh, burning sacrifice. So it'd be this big like fragrant steam from this wine and from well, and this would just be water, like going up to heaven that, that symbolized like the worship and prayers of God's people. And and this water ritual that was done every single day was this reminder that while they were in the desert, while they were wandering in the desert, and while, while they had no water, that God provided water for them. So for seven days. The people of Jerusalem would have been, like, seeing this water ritual play out. And on the last day, after, after seeing this ritual, like, played out seven times where in the, as we, as the people of Israel wandered this world, that God would provide them drink. Jesus says this, right? If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. You know, it's really similar to what he told the woman of Samaria as, as he and her had this conversation. She was a marginalized woman, like looked down upon, had been married five times, was living with a sixth guy. And Jesus said to her, it's in John 4, verses 13 and 14. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. What Jesus is offering is that if you would just like, recognize me for who I really am, if you would really embrace the reality of what I came to do, that, that I could satisfy your deepest desires. I could meet your deepest needs. All of those things that you thirst for, that just, and that just never satisfy or only satisfy for a minute, you could find your satisfaction in me. You know, if you're familiar with the story of the woman at the well, like initially she didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. She's like, man, I would love that water, so I wouldn't have to keep coming back to this well all the time. And he's like, no, you don't understand, right? I think the same thing happens here. I don't think anybody get, gets the idea because of the word but. Look what happens um, in verse... Where am I? Oh, yeah, verse 39. It starts with this word but. But this he spoke of the Spirit. So he makes this proclamation that, that like, your life will be changed and you'll be satisfied. and But... He was talking about something that they didn't think he was talking about. I think they they had the same response that this woman at the well did. They're like, whoa, that would be great if we had all that water because it gets hot here in Israel. But what was he speaking about? He spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. The Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. What John is telling us is that this promise of satisfaction that's found in Christ and comes from Christ is, is made real to us in the, in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit within our hearts. And that this doctrine of the Holy Spirit is one that has like all sorts of implications for us. And, um, and in John, though, itself, it speaks about life. You know, what we've seen so far is that, that the Spirit is the one that gives life. So kind of at its core, Jesus is saying, you can have a brand new life if you acknowledge who I am, if you, if you like, believe in my work on the cross, and if you just come to me. That's what he told Nicodemus, who's going to actually appear, appear in the story. And he says, like, you know, unless you're born of the water and the spirit, you can't see the kingdom of God, but you need to be born again, Nicodemus. You need a fresh start. You need this fresh start with a transformed heart that comes from the work of my spirit within you. But they don't get it. They don't value it. They just want, like, their immediate thirst quenched. They just want, like, their immediate needs met. And they just completely don't understand but this has been prophesied all through the pages of Scripture, and there's all sorts of places I could go to talk about how God quenches our thirst. But listen to what it says in Isaiah chapter 12, verses 2 through 6. He says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. Like, you'll be able to drink. You'll be able to drink with joy. He goes on. And in that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. And we should praise God because in us, he's given a spirit that is this always replenishing supply of satisfaction in this life. We should sing for joy. We should proclaim his salvation. And then just a few verses. Oh, down in verse Isaiah 55, I think Jesus is is demonstrating this very thing that Isaiah 55 says. He says, Ho, or like, listen up! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? Come to me if you're thirsty and you who have no money come by and eat come by wine and milk without money and without cost why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance and incline your ear and come to me listen that you may live and i will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. He's like, just come and drink. And Isaiah expands on it. Buy wine and buy milk and bread. And then he asks the question, like, why? Why do you spend your bread or your money? Why do you spend your life? Why do you spend all of your energy pursuing things that will not satisfy? When Jesus promises that Through the work of his Spirit, we'll have this well of water springing up that always replenishes from which we can find joy and satisfaction, the joy of salvation. And then he moves on. Just a few verses later in Isaiah 55, 6, he says this. And this is a call to each of us here this morning. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. Why? Why? and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Did you hear that? It's that unbelievable reality of the gospel when, we're, when our sin is exposed for everything that we are, the kind of thing that makes us recoil in shame. He's saying, you know what? If we go to the Lord, we will have compassion and we will have abundant pardon. Like we will be forgiven and be met with compassion, and then he says this: For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declare the Lord. For as high as the for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Because we wouldn't do it right. The reason why we recoil in shame and shame and 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 hate the light is because we can't imagine that that we could be more accepted than we ever dared to hope. But God's saying to us, you know what? Like I don't do things like you guys do. For anyone that comes to me, I respond with compassion and pardon. And what Jesus says is, you'll have this satisfaction that comes from the new life. And then he says that yeah. Because my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. It's this unbelievable offer. But the people of Israel were so, like, bound by what they heard, by what they assumed, by what they thought. They were just completely missing it all. And yet Jesus, in his grace, just continues to proclaim his goodness to them. But because they don't understand that, at the end of the day, verses 45 through 52, they just oppose him. I'm just going to move through these things quickly. I'll read it. Look what it says. The officers, therefore, came to the chief priests and the Pharisees. This is where we find out what happened when they went to go arrest Jesus. And they said to him, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. The Pharisees, therefore, answered them, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this multitude, which does not know the law, is accursed. Nicodemus said to him, he who came to him before being one of them, our law does not judge a man until it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered and said to him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet ever arises from Galilee. So here's this, here's this amazing contrast. Jesus is offering life and satisfaction, and anybody that comes to him will never thirst. And because they just can't understand it, it's met with complete opposition. And this is important for us. I don't want to skip over these verses because I think sometimes we're like shocked. Like, why is this world like so opposed to the purposes of Christ? We, we talked about this last week. Because they don't understand and look at how they respond. The first thing that they do is they respond with like mockery. The, the guards come to him and they're like, they're like, man, nobody has spoken like this guy speaks. There's something within them that's stirred as they're hearing this promise of, of life and the things that he's talking about. And there's something that's stirred in them, and they're not really sure what to do with it, but they knew they couldn't arrest him. And their response is, "You have not also been led astray, have you? really? Are you that dumb? They're going to follow this guy. They respond with mockery, then they respond with posturing and power. None of the rulers or the Pharisees has believed in him. have they We're the authorities here if we don 't believe in them, why would you believe him? Why would you be led astray like you should you should just follow along with the party line, whatever powers happen to be in control of the world at the time. you should just keep doing those things, and why would you bother to believe that Jesus might be who He claims to be? It's also met with like condemnation and threats. Look what he says, uh, verse 49. "But this multitude, which does not know the law, is accursed. They're just a bunch of idiots that don't read their Bibles. And so they're accursed. They just continue to sit under the judgment of God. And then kind of lastly, it was met with condescending dismissiveness. Because Nicodemus, the guy that came to Jesus in John 3, who was told that he needed to be born again, verse 50 said to them, and then verse 51, our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? He's like, well, we should at least give the guy due process. Right? Right? And then they they respond this way. They answered and said to them, "You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see; no prophet arises from Galilee." There's like, go go read the Bible yourself, Nicodemus. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. Are you from Galilee too? Are you just like whatever? You know, Aaron, why don't you come up and let me just talk about this for a second. You know, as, as the gospel message went out, as Christ's grace and, and the proclamation of his mercy went out, and as it was met with hostility, as the, as the leaders, like, dismissed Nicodemus, and they said to him, it's really interesting, search and see to Nicodemus. If you really think you might be the Messiah, go read your Bibles, Nicodemus. You'll find out that we know what we're talking about. You know, what we find out, Nicodemus appears three times in the book of John, I think. Three times in the book of John. One's back in John 3 when Jesus first told him, you need to be born of the Spirit, Nicodemus. You need new life. You need a new start. He appears here like, hey, we should maybe give this guy some due process. And they're like, search and see, Nicodemus. Look what it says over in John 19, after Jesus died on the cross, verses 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, like their hostility and their condescension and their condemnation and their threats, hadn't stopped. Asked Pilate that he might take the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission, so he came and took his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, that was John 3, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus' And bounded in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in that garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So, back in John 7, there's this challenge to Nicodemus search and see. Apparently, he must have. Because when Jesus was like just dying there on the cross, was dead. His corpse was there. Birds were probably circling it. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus like took some risks just to to just show their like love and devotion to Jesus, even in his death. They brought him down. Nicodemus bought a hundred pounds of spices. I don't know what that costs, but I'm guessing it's a significant amount of change. He, like, shows his devotion to Jesus in his death because he searched and saw, and then three days later he's going to be, like, mind blown when Jesus rose from the dead and, and began to deliver on all of his promises and give the Spirit of God and all of those things. You know, for so for those of us here today, do we really believe that Jesus came from above, that he is above all, and he deserves all of our loyalty? Do we live that way? Has it captured our, like, minds that we get to, like, serve the God of the universe who gave himself for us? Like, do we really believe that that that, that the cross is central and essential? And do we really believe everything it says about me and everything it says about like the God's unbelievable love for us? And then do we really believe that life is found in him? Or are we spending our lives and spending our money for that which will never satisfy you know if there's anything in your life that's like, that god's like bringing to mind that you haven't submitted to his lordship or that you that you aren't about his purposes that he that he made clear in the cross that you aren't seeking him as your source of your life i just challenge you to confess those to the lord and ask him to like renew to you the joy of your salvation and if you're still wrestling with who jesus is and whether this is all just made up and search and see, right? just like they told Nicodemus, search and see. They were being sarcastic and dismissive, but the reality is, is if you search and see, like the scriptures point clearly to who he is and what he promises us, and and I just challenge you to continue that process yourself. So, I mean, Aaron, why don't you close us, and then I'll close us in prayer. But I just thank you for the reality of that song, that um, as your church who, who follows you, we, we need to just pray that same prayer that Christ did um, as he followed you, that not our will but yours be done. Father, I just ask for each of us here, if, if there's somebody here who hasn't like yielded their life to you as as Lord, that hasn't experienced the forgiveness that's available on the cross, that you would open their hearts and open their minds and open their eyes to see you for who you are so that they could experience life. And For all of us that have, Lord, I just pray that you would... Um, Allow us and, and challenge us to forsake those things that we go to for life that will never satisfy and that we just pursue you and, and pursue your life and, and give our life for your purpose and in accordance with your will. Just thank you for all the moms here and for their investment in their kids, and I just ask that you would empower them to just demonstrate your wisdom and your life and the truth of your gospel to the kids in their care. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.